Today's scripture will be uh, shorter than what's listed in the bulletin. I will be reading from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The saying is sure. Whoever aspires to the office of bishop desires a noble task. Now a bishop must be above reproach, married only once, temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, an apt teacher, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, keeping his children submissive and respectful in every way. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and the snare of the devil. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. May God grant me to speak with judgment what I have received. For God is the guide even of wisdom. And God is the corrector of the wise. Both we and our words are in God's hands. Amen. As many of you know, each January I attend a group called the Movable Feast, which consists of 25 Presbyterian clergy committed to textual study and sermon planning who meet for a week for this purpose. About 15 years ago, our leader was New Testament scholar Dr. Luke Timothy Johnson. Johnson, who is Roman Catholic, urged us to pay attention to the pastoral epistles, the New Testament books of 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, on which I am preaching a summer sermon series. He said that the major contribution the pastoral epistles make to the Bible as a whole is their affirmation of three sources of authority that we in the Protestant tradition often overlook. These are the value of tradition, the value of experience, and the value of institutional knowledge and history. In Protestantism, Johnson said, we so emphasize faith alone, grace alone, and scripture alone, that we often under, underestimate the value of tradition, experience, and history as we seek to determine what to believe and how to live as committed Christians. What we glean from the pastoral epistles are thus like jewels that we do not realize we have until we find them in a trunk in the attic, nestled among old lamps, clothing from another era, boxes of photograph albums, old tax returns, and high school yearbooks. In the midst of such family memorabilia, 
we may find a small box and when we open it, find that it has jewels from the family past that are valuable to us in the present. Now when we first read our scripture lesson for today, it may sound more attic than jewel. It concerns qualifications of those who would aspire to be bishop, the leader of the local house churches in which Christianity existed for the first couple of centuries as a minority under the Roman Empire. Now a bishop must be above reproach, the writer says, married only once, temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, an apt teacher, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well. He must not be a recent convert. He must be well thought of by outsiders. In the decades between the death and resurrection of Christ and the writing of 1 Timothy, probably 50 to 60 years, Christianity has undergone significant changes. Gone is the earlier idealism and intensity of a movement. Gone is the explosive growth of the church that followed Pentecost. Christianity has now become an organization, skeletal to be sure, but still an organization. And like all organizations, it has developed guidelines and traditions, rules and regulations, offices, and leaders. The offices are called elder, deacon, and bishop. And most appear to be chosen by members of the house churches that they lead. First Timothy's list of qualifications for such leaders falls into three broad but interrelated categories. Personal character health in family life and relationships, and temperament. While this list is specific to first century Christian congregations that live under the Roman Empire, I believe that it can speak to issues that we face in leadership today within the family, within the church and community, even within the nation in which we live. And I ask you to follow me along as I share these reflections. In digging into this passage, I have done what I often do, count words and phrases. Within the seven verses that we have read, the writer holds up 17 traits for leadership. I will only ask you to memorize 16 of them. <laughs> Four of these traits concern character. The leader must be hospitable, an apt teacher, not a drunkard, and not a lover of money. Two of these traits concern the health and integrity of the leader's life and relationships. 
being married to one wife, which most scholars take to mean not being a polygamist, not being a remarried widower, not being a remarried divorced person, not being an unmarried person, or obviously not being a female. As we said last week, not all scripture blesses in all circumstances. The leader should also manage, quote, manage his own household well, particularly having children who are, quote, submissive and respectful in every way. Now we have more than a few adult children of clergy in this congregation. In our industry, they are known as PKs, preacher's kids. In at least two instances, we have two adult preacher's kids married to each other. And we have at least one who is the child of two preachers. And these are just the ones I know about. Now, I have thought about asking all of the preacher's kids in the congregation to stand. <laughs> but if I did that, then I would want to ask you whether or not growing up you were submissive <laughs> and respectful in every way. Only those who were not likely as committed to telling the truth as others <laughs> would what? Sit down. Uh, it's a tall order. If we look at biblical characters like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Saul and David and Eli the priest, we rarely see leaders of Israel who have children that are submissive and respectful in every way. Maybe the PKs in our midst were. Who knows? In all seriousness, though, what I think lies behind these emphases on personal character and family relationships is something that is crucial about leadership in any society, in any organization, secular or religious, first century or our century. It is what I would call the spiritual and psychological health of the leader. In order for an organization to be healthy, its leader at the center needs to be healthy. Over my years as a minister, I have concluded that as the primary leader of a congregation, I need to know who I am what I believe, why I have accepted this position of leadership, and the direction in which I seek to lead the church. Though it may not be necessary to have been married only once, to be male, or even to have children who are respective and submissive in every way, the reality is, to use a colloquial phrase, I, as the leader of the church, need to be right with God. At least to the extent that any of us ever has the power to find our way to such rightness on our own. 
if I am essentially healthy, then my health will spread out to include the people closest to me, Patrick and Casey and the new associate pastor we're searching for, and then the session, and then the staff, and then the congregation as a whole. I suspect that this basic pattern follows for entities and organizations beyond the church. Leadership of a family, a working group, an institution, a political party, a nation. The leader at the center has to be healthy to give health a chance to spread throughout the whole body. Let me be even more specific. Every day when I walk about four-tenths a mile to and from church, that direction, sometimes three or four times a day, I nearly always pass children and parents together. Parents are pushing their children in strollers, at least when the nannies are off duty. Parents are walking their children to mops at Trinity Methodist to our Westminster Preschool, to George Mason's school, or to scout meetings here at Westminster. Then at the door every Sunday after worship, I see infants asleep on their parents' shoulders being carried out. I see children who give me high fives as they are darting to get cookies at lemonade on the lawn. And occasionally I will see a child who will leave with tears. More than likely over the length of the sermon <laughs> rather than any poignancy within it. In the sector of society in which we live, thanks to our good fortune, most of us who become parents make that choice on our own. Whether we have been spiritually and psychologically healthy up to that point, once we choose to bring children into the world or to adopt them into our lives, it is of crucial importance that we be as psychologically and spiritually healthy as possible. We need to be right with God the greater the health we bring to the family that we create increases, though does not guarantee, the spread of such health throughout the family. To take it one step further, if that health disappears among one of its parents, it often becomes necessary after seeking other alternatives for the other parent in modeling such health for children to end the marriage. Sometimes a parent simply must leave a marriage or a relationship precisely for the sake of the children. Leadership in the family, managing the household well, is that important to our children and to our society as a whole. Now my counting of words and phrases in this passage 
also finds seven traits of leadership that are important to temperament, concerning temperament. The leader is to be temperate, sensible, not violent, gentle, not quarrelsome, not a recent convert, and not puffed up with conceit. These traits concerning temperament are important in leading anything, a family, a church, an institution, even a nation. In the letter to Timothy, which was written to be circulated and read among several house churches, the implication is that those to whom the letter is read have a significant say in choosing from among those who aspire to be bishop the one best suited for the office. In other words, this letter was written and these traits were given to people who would be choosing a leader in some kind of democratic process. It is our privilege as citizens of one of the freest people in human history to choose our president and others of our leaders as well. It is our right and therefore it is our duty. And for those of us who believe in God, voting is something for which, for which we give thanks And it is something to which we bring all the resources of our faith. Study, prayer, our relationships with believers, our conscience, our courage, our wisdom. I am never hopeless about our nation. And no matter who our next president turns out to be, I will not be hopeless. But I must say that like most of you, I am more deeply troubled than I have ever been by the anger, the hatred, and the racism that I have seen expressed in and incited by this presidential campaign. No matter who is next inaugurated, The anger, resentment, and hatred that during this season of choice have come to the forefront of our national and even international expression must be acknowledged, addressed, and resolved to the best of our national ability. Whether these are the emotions of working class white men in rural areas of the country who have for decades lost ground in our economy, or of inner-city African Americans who must raise their children, particularly their sons, to be extra careful around police and even in church. The spirit that is loose in our land, much of it legitimate, much of it malignant, has to be addressed and resolved even as tradition and experience and history remind us that resolution rarely comes easily or quickly. Those in power must listen 
and be willing to act, those who feel and express anger must play a part of the resolution. All of us together as a nation, leaders and people, must address the condition which give which the conditions which give rise to the anger that has welled up within us. Such collective effort is the purpose of politics. We are fortunate to be able to engage in that collective effort in a democratic system. While the list of traits presented to Timothy are not the only traits we need in an American president, I would not delete any of these traits from a list needed for the leader of the free world, particularly if we interpret the caution about being a recent convert to be a focus on the value of deeply held ideas and principles developed over time, and particularly if we add to the word gentle the words but firm. As we engage in this democratic effort in our nation, the most important figure will be the person that we elect as president. The spiritual and psychological health of that person will impact the people in his or her immediate circle, the military, the leaders and members of Congress, and the nation as a whole. As we engage in the democratic process in the weeks and months ahead, as well as after the election and inauguration, I urge each of you as a committed Christian to reflect on how these standards provided to the early church centuries ago inform our choice of leaders at all levels today. Temperate, sensible, not violent, gentle but firm, not quarrelsome, not a recent convert to essential principles, not puffed up with conceit. Among those who aspire to be our president, will we look long and hard and prayerfully at these standards? And then will we ourselves try to live up to these standards as we act as citizens, as Christians, as moral agents in this still new errand into the wilderness called America. Amen.